From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, a very special edition of Wharton Moneyball. We're going virtual as we have been for the last six months. We've got the whole crew here as we usually do these days. Eric Bradlow's here, Shane Jensen's here, Adi Weiner, this is Cade Massey. We have a little different format this week in a few different ways. We have been starting with coronavirus since March, since it is so much the context of sports and our lives. This week, the special topic is going to be forest fire analytics. We're going to spend some time in the second half of the show talking with some guys who worry a great deal about what they call money ball for fire, which seems pretty relevant to us these days. And we thought we'd dig into that in the second half. So that's going to stand in for our coronavirus conversation. In the first half, we're going to do our usual talk about sports, but we're doing it with a live audience. We're delighted to have members of Penn Athletics, our Tate McKenzie Society joining us online on our Zoom call today. They are our audience and they have provided some questions for us. We'll pick up in the second half. So first half of the show, first quarter of the show, that is, we're going to talk current events in the sports world. Second quarter, a mailbag of sorts, a mailbag from the R. Tate McKenzie Society at Penn Athletics, and then we'll drop into some Forest Fire Athletics in the second half of the show. Gentlemen, with that introduction, I'm very interested with all that we have bounced around, all the different sports culminating here this fall, what has caught your eye in the world of sports? Well, I watched so much sports on Sunday. It was a ridiculous day of sports between obviously football, pro football going on. Obviously the U.S. Open, the final round was going on. There was also some NBA action going on. Um, I think the thing that caught my eye is, you know, um, people have always wondered, you know, how much advantage do you get from hitting the golf ball really far? (laughs) And I think we found that out on Sunday. Uh, Bryson DeChambeau, I think everybody knows he's a guy that put on 40 pounds of muscle so he could drive the ball basically 40 to 50 yards farther. Um, This shows you where analytics has to work because the old pundits were like, well, that might work at a wide open course, but that's never working at the U.S. Open with the hard rough. And his comment is, I'm probably not going to hit the balls that straight anyway. I might as well be 120 yards from the green in the rough than 170 yards from the green in the rough. So I'm going to blast the driver on every hole, hit it as far and close to the hole as I can. And that's what he did. He hit the least number of fairways of any U.S. Open champion. Yeah. At Wingfoot, which is a notoriously hard course, he was the only golfer that ended up under par. He was minus six. The next closest was even par. And it was just a miraculous show of power. And we even had the analysts, the experts on the show saying, boy, the analytics people are going to have fun with this one. And maybe he's changed. Even we had the golfers also saying this may change fundamentally how they think about playing golf. You know, Eric, uh, it was great that you got to see all the sports. I have to say that I saw nothing at being uh, Rosh Hashanah. So I feel terrible that I missed it. But I ask you a question. We posed this issue about golf, about power golf. And for historically, we, we argue that that's not a necessarily a good strategy because it comes with too many costs. So the way I pose it is one is arguing from a sample size of one something that's generalizable? Is it something about Bryson uh, Chambeau that's, that's unique? Or is it something about, about analytics, a training analytics, something about use of computers, data analysis that has made it possible to merge the incredible power with the technique and the, and the accuracy that's needed to win major golf tournaments? 
Yeah, so you bring up a great point, which is the sample size of one, which is, um, as far as we know, this is the only major tournament Bryson DeChambeau will ever win. Um, <laughs> all we know, but we don't know. He's won one now. Um, we do know, we have a little bit more data. Let's just keep going up and in. Um, we know that he's played, I think it's five tournaments since the return of golf. And he's ended up, I think, in the top 10 in, I think, four out of the five. So he was commenting he's building towards it. But here's what we also know. And this is what he claims, DeChambeau claimed in his interviews he does. He's not the only one that has ever, let's go John Daly. Let's go Rory McIlroy. There's data from every round of golf that's played. There's data that says, based on your distance to the hole, what's your likelihood of scoring getting a given birdie? And he can do the math and so can his helpers and say, you'd be better off hitting it 370 in the rough, possibly even then 300 in the fairway. You'd rather have 120 with a wedge in your hand than 200 from the middle of the fairway with a five iron. And it's not just about him. We have that data from all kinds of players. Let me, let me just add that uh, it, is, it is helpful to be that strong in the rough as well. I mean, one of the difficulties with rough, like they usually have the U.S. Open, is just the strength to get down and through the ball. And he is no question advantaged in that part of the game as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess I was uh, – Katie, okay, that, that, your, your, your clarification actually answers part of my question. I was going to have two questions about DeChambeau specifically. Is he better in the rough than most players? And is he less accurate? Because, I mean, you know, I, I, again, this sort of advantage that – I mean, the, the argument that you know, you're kind of making is that perhaps the, the adding this extra distance is not so bad for somebody like DeChambeau specifically because perhaps it doesn't degrade his accuracy. Are there golfers out there where it would more? One of the things they will say they, – they say about – they give him a lot of credit for being a, grind, for being a grinder. He's one of these mm-hmm. guys who's on the, on the, on the driving range all the, all the time. Like B.J. Singh, when he was at the top of his game, people talked about just what a grinder he was. And so he's definitely working. He's working, and what he's working on is being more accurate because he has the strength. But it's a, it's a fair question. I mean, Daly was not known as being an especially accurate guy, you know, and, and, he, and, he, and he got through, and he did it at some wide-open courses. So – the stunning thing, I think, to the golf world is that DeChambeau came in here and did this at Wing Foot, which is not one of these supposedly wide-open golf courses. What's going to happen when he gets to Augusta in November? What's going to happen when the British turns around, the, the Open turns around at, uh, at St. Andrews again, you know? I mean, it's just going to – everyone's just blown away by him playing a different game. And I, I think what we talked – you remember we told, I told you this, that Adi and I remember we were talking about it on the air. Like – you would be better off hitting like an 11 footer, like, a, you know, eight feet versus 11 feet has this much change in probability yeah. of making a putt. Mm-hmm. Remember we talked about how massive an effect it is. Like you'd rather take the 50th golfer in the world at eight feet than the best golfer in the world at 11 feet. Like it's that much difference in terms of the make percentage. Well, we're going to start collecting the data, Adi, just right. like the one you're asking for. Again, you're right. I'm not conditioning on the additional strength that DeChambeau has, but just looking at every golfer, which is better, 120 in the rough or 170 in the middle of the fairway? And we can find that out. Just, just to add, just unfortunately, ShotLink data, which is, the, uh, which is the, the source for this, has just become offline. They no longer give it out to researchers uh, gratis. So, is that right? Uh, yeah, is that right? Yeah, that was just confirmed. That's disappointing. They'll probably still sell it. They'll probably still They'll sell, sell it. it indeed. Yes. So tell me guys, I'm curious how you react to DeChambeau's game. I mean, it's, it's turning me, you know, I always make fun of Adi for being such an old man when it comes to baseball, 
Shimbo <laughs> is turning me into an old man for golf. I mean, he has a he has a swing that's hard to love. You know, it's just not the the the, the fluid elegant golf swing that we've been told is the perfect golf swing. It's kind of the opposite of that. And you watch him play and it's, it's not this graceful, natural thing. It's this super engineered thing. And I I don't feel, I'm not proud of this. I'm not proud of this. I'm confessing to you my reaction to his game. Did you see the golf swing of the guy that came in second, Matthew Wolf? Yeah. I've got a better golf swing than him. His (laughs) golf swing is terrible. By the way, did you see the golf swing of the guy who's won whose first two majors on the senior tour? His name is um, uh, Jim Furyk. You know, his golf swing, it sucks too. And so here's the thing. Last time I checked, they count the number of strokes it takes for the ball to go into the hole. And my view is I like the fact that you own your own swing. I like the fact that we're going to have 380-yard bombers going up against a guy like Louis Oosthuizen, who came in third, who hits a 260 off the tee. I think it makes golf more interesting. I do, th- I do like the fact that the, a variety of different kind of mechanistic actions can get you sort of the same result. I mean, I, I also grew up watching Chi-Chi Rodriguez. Remember that guy? His oh, yeah. swing was like, he was like the David Ortiz of golf. He would just go up there and just try and murder the ball every time. And it looked like, you know, it had <laughs> just as big of a chance of flying off to like the extreme left or right than it would. But it seemed to work for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I might, there's an expression, the old expression – you drive for show and putt for dough. And this guy could be hitting the ball 400 yards off the tee. He's still not going to be a consistent champion unless he can putt, particularly when he gets into the British Open and the golf courses in Scotland and Ireland. So I, I don't know. I don't follow him that close. I don't know how good a putter he is. But hitting the ball that kind of distance, whether it's in the rough or in the fairway, is only going to get you so far so many times. You still have to be able to putt that 8-foot, 11-foot, uh, analogy you gave is still what it's all about. That's, that's one of the that's one of our members from the Penn Athletics R. Tate McKenzie Society jumping in with a with he's short a little short on Dechambeau. I'm with you, Mike. I like that perspective, Adi. I'm going to just respond by saying um, that actually that old expression uh, is is essentially uh, been proven fundamentally wrong by the analytics community. It's not that you you have to be able to putt like a professional. I mean, let's be honest, Eric Bradley might have a, an awkward swing, but he's not going to, you know, you, you, you have to be up there, but it turns out that, that um, the consistent uh, ability to be always in the top and competitive get, you know, round after round is actually not on the putting floor. It, it's getting lucky on the putting putting that actually allows you to win. And I'm not, this is not research that I've done. This is most of this research comes from Mark Brody who's basically showed that it looks like people win on the putt because that's what you see and it's up front. And to win an actual tournament, you have to have some good punts, putts. But frankly, to be, be competitive round after round is actually not the putting. Yeah, actually, just to build an audience and, and, and to answer you, Mike, the statistic that has shown that's most correlated with scoring and winning is actually um, distance from the hole when you get on the green. And so that one, in other words, you could be a much better putter than me and if you're 15 feet away and I'm 11 feet away, that's what I was saying to Adi before, I have a better chance than you if I'm 11 feet and you're 15. So the, the, the metric that's consistently shown to predict winning is approaches to the green and distance from the hole. So, Eric, I'm curious. Uh, you, you, you had a, a, a position on Dustin Johnson coming into this tournament. Did we get any information about his ability to compete in majors from this weekend? 
Well, just, just for our listeners, just to remind everybody, I'm one of those people that believes the more tournaments he wins that are not majors, the less I think of him as a player. Now, I know that sounds ironic because typically you want to win, but the guy's got 23 wins on the PGA Tour and only one major. And this was Adi. It's another example. You told me I was allowed to do this. He ended up in the top 10. He ended up tied for sixth, but he was competitive in all the rounds. He faded at the end. He was not any, I mean, he ended up sixth, 11 shots back of the lead. But remember, prior to this, he ended up, his four previous tournaments were second, first, second, first. So here's, a, to me, another example of Dustin Johnson played well, but not well enough to win in a major. So it's a, you know, my, 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 my response to you coming in was, let's see if he's in the hunt. And if he fades, if he's in the hunt. I'm just not sure if it counts. I'm not sure if he I wasn't really, really in the hunt. He was so he was he was sick, but he was pretty far back. But again, my view is he should have been in the hunt. So it's early to be talking about which teams are in the hunt in the NFL, but we're still seeing some great games go down. The NFL has not lacked for action from this weekend, guys. What most jumped out to you? Well, I want to talk about a game that jumped out at me, but also I want to turn it over to Adi and Shane to comment on this. So. I watched a game I've never seen anything like it before, which was the Cowboys-Falcons game. You have seen something like that before, well, Eric. I believe. No, I'm Actually, we've all that. seen something like even, that before. I'm not even talking about the, the Super Bowl game that I'm forgetting. I, I, I forget who won that game, but let me go – and maybe the Falcons were in it. But let's go back to the game I'm talking about this week in the present, which is the Cowboys and against the Falcons. Two things struck me about the game, once during the game and once after. Um, apparently – Forget that the Cowboys in an onside kick got the ball, won the game. Apparently, they were down by 15 points with less than five minutes to go. Teams that were in that situation were 1,875 and six. In other words, the Falcons, if you just go by empirics on almost 2,000 games, had over a 300 to one advantage to win that game mm-hmm. based on historical data. That's number one. I got, I got another one for you kind of along that line. Teams that uh, were uh, score 39 points without any turnovers prior prior to this weekend were 440 and oh wow right wow. that's another stat i heard but then but then i thought uh, shane i knew Very you were this. i thought i would do the natural thing i said let me go look at the power rankings and see how they rank the cowboys and the falcons so i without looking at the sheet that i typed in advance guys they listed the falcons as 31st in the league now they're 0 two but remember they lost the cowboys by a point where do you think they ranked the Cowboys? I mean, remember, the Cowboys easily could have lost that game. I mean, you could argue deserve to lose that game. Where do you I, think mean, I, I mean, any power rankings where they put Atlanta at number 31, I'm not going to – like, aren't worth anything anyway. Yeah, who's but ranking? I guess – Sure. Know, US, maybe they – did they USA, put them at two? USA Today power rankings. Yeah. yeah. I mean, come on. I'm just commenting. They put Dallas at 13th. Now, yeah. here's the problem I had with that. You okay. have one team that beat another team by a point that was losing for 99.9% of the game and had basically no probability and no right to win the game, just like the, the Patriots in that Super Bowl. Notice, Shane, I threw that in there. And all of a sudden, they're 13th and the other team's 31. It made no coherent sense to me. I'm not sure that it would have, the result would have been that different if it, the outcome had been different. I don't think they would have moved Atlanta that much, and I don't think they would have moved the Cowboys down that much. You'd like to think they wouldn't, but I'm not sure what you're Yeah, and it's worth pointing out that, you know, one of the power rank or the sort of rankings that we use a lot, I think, you know, for these types of things is is, is kind of like an ELO-type model, like, you know, 538 well, uses. About victory, that's for sure. 
And, and, and those models are, they would move the exact same amount with, regardless of which team lost by a point. You know, I mean, well, the depends. Patriots took a nosedive in those rankings uh, today because of that, even though they, you know, essentially played a very, very highly competitive. I came, I came out of that Seattle Patriots game believing more in the Patriots than I went into it. I'm with but Of you. course, because they lost, they go down. Well, that's, that's, I mean, I think that's a bad quality in a predictive metric for football. I, in Massey Peabody, I can tell you that the one, the binary one or lost does not have any additional explanatory power on our moves. It's just play by play effectiveness of the teams. And I, 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 th- I don't think there's any evidence in football that the ability to win is a predictive quality. When, when, by the way, when the um, Patriots got stopped at the one yard line and the Seattle won the game. Did that make everyone think they're even for the Super Bowl? They've got him back. <laughs> I mean, you'd, ha- I, you'd have to ask to see, if I was a Seahawks fan, I would not consider it even. I'm I joking. I'm joking. How is Because that- that's actually the ch- second time now. Like I think the Patriots in the last three times the Seahawks Patriots have played, it's come down to basically the last play goal line stand. Seattle's won the first, the last two of those, but they were in the regular season. So I, I'll still take the Super Bowl. It, it, I can't believe it came down. What what a game! What a what a what a perfect game for. for it was incredible. I've got a question. I got a tough question. This is this is kind of aimed at Audi, but it's going to be tough enough for everybody to get it. If you saw this stat on Sunday, don't give the answer away. Okay, what do you think counts as a long streak in the NFL for the number of games in a row that you're leading at halftime? Okay, so I, I saw this, and I don't have it in front of me because it was on the screen. It went away before I could take a picture of it. But I know what the number is that the NFL record is. I know what the current active leading team is. And I'm curious for y'all to just think this through. Like, the NFL scores as a statistical process. Ah, uh, okay. But I know it's an Audie Weiner question. So it is perfect. an Audie Weiner Le- question. Leading at halftime or half just time. not behind at halftime? Like, do ties? I believe it's, le- it's a great question. I don't know for sure. I think it's leading at halftime. I've got a guess. Lottie, you go first. The probabilist here, go first. Well, okay, so basically the rough approximation is probably a half, even though there are some teams that are better uh, than others. But on the other hand, those go down really quickly in number. So if I just simply go with the half, then one would argue that a streak of 10 is about a thousand, would take about a thousand, uh, one in a thousand teams would do that. And so that would be, you know, there's 30 teams a year um, giving it a shot at that. So you're looking at about 30 years before you get something of that nature. But of course, extreme ones tend to have a, quite a bit more longevity than, than you expect. So I would guess something to the effect of about between 15 and 20 would be my, my guess. Eric? So by the way, just, just a one clarification. When Adi said I would start with a half, he means the probability for any one game mm-hmm. that the brain that was, that was his starting place, which was a very interesting approach. Eric? I, I, must, I, I almost always agree with Professor Weiner. <laughs> and this is one of those cases I would have done the exact same approximation. I would have come up, I was even thinking to myself, 30, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so me, but I'm going the opposite way. I think Adi's saying it's 15 to 20 games mm-hmm. as the uh, lead. Um, I'm going to say it's lower. I'm going to say it's somewhere around eight to nine. All right. Well, Given I don't have 30. Well, this, this is the record. Sorry, well, what the, the NFL record, record is? Current record. record. Oh, Current record. probably I'm, I'm gonna, 12. I'm going to guess the NFL record is like 20. Okay. Y'all are good. I'm really, I'm, I'm really pleased with your performances today. Uh, I believe the record right now is 14 oh. and it's a hundred years old. Mm-hmm. And, and there's two teams right up there at hundred, both a hundred years old. 
the Ravens hold the current streak and it's 12. But the close, everybody around them, everybody around them did it 100 years ago. So it's a 100-year-old record that they're playing with. They're not quite to it yet. Yeah. But I was surprised at, I was surprised at how low that number is, I suppose. Yeah, and I'm I'm a little surprised at too. I I mean I I was watching like some old Patriots playoff game. I've been do, doing that a lot uh, during during our pandemic times, and I remember them saying something like, you know, the Patriots haven't uh, been behind. Like they were playing, I think, in the AFC Championship, and they said the Patriots have not been be behind at halftime in the last like since like you know week eight or something like that. But that's a little bit different, right? Because you could. Being tied also is not That's being right. behind. Right. So That's I think that that is a, yeah, like, you know, if, if you kind yeah. of like, if you changed it to how the longest streak not being behind at halftime, I bet you would be, you know, probably a few games longer. In fact, actually, tie probability at the half is, is probably remarkably large, if you think yeah. about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think being tied at the half happens considerably, and that really yeah. is a chunk away from the probability of being mm-hmm. ahead. Yep. Uh, Adi, you, you've given us before something about the how rarely leads change. I mean, we think about leads yeah. changing all the time, but in fact, it's relatively rare. How, tell, tell us, tell me again what that principle is. It's a great, great theorem of uh, of probability. It's called the arc sine law, and it applies to voting systems and uh, it applies to sports. And basically, what it says is that if you think about the distribution of the time that one team is in front it actually has an arc sign distribution. So it's very likely you're, um, you spend the majority of time either behind or ahead okay. in a sport. And rarely do you see leads change, uh, change, change places. Okay. So it, there's, there was a football game, not too, maybe a Super Bowl not too long ago, where the number of leads changed a whole heck of a lot of times. And that is incredibly infrequent and very exciting. And yeah, and, that, and that's what, and that's also what we remember. It's more vivid, and so we think it's more frequent than it actually is. So back to real football. Um, I think one of the things that most surprised me was the Kansas City game this past weekend. And most people have had them as one of the, I don't, know, if not the top team in the league, one of the top two, maybe three. And they didn't turn in much of a performance. Right? They could have easily lost this game. Any updates on KC? Well, I watched a lot of that game. Um, I thought two things similar to what Shane said with the um, Cowboys um, I or so the Patriots I thought the Chargers looked fantastic in that game I think they're re- looking really good I can't believe they're going back to Tyrod Taylor I think Justin Herbert earned the starting spot based in that game Tyrod Taylor uh, had a chest issue just before the game Justin Herbert came in didn't even know he was starting until five minutes before the game threw for over 300 yards looked absolutely fantastic. The defense looked great. Um, and this is the part that was a little shocking to me. Um, with two minutes left in overtime, they went for a 58-yard field goal. Now, they have the greatest kicker on the planet, this guy Butker, who hit it, and it would have been good from 75. But let's remember, if he misses that kick, San Diego has the ball at the 48-yard line. They need 15 yards, and then they win the game. Yeah. And yeah. this was, by the way, after a – fourth and two and a five yard false start penalty, which moved it back to 58 yards. They still went for the field. Yeah, he goal. made the, he made that 58 yard field goal three times in a row. They had, the first one was like canceled out because of the, the false start. The second one was canceled out because there's a timeout to ice it. He made that thing 58 yards. Four, field four, goal three times he already in a made a 58 yarder earlier in the game. Yeah. It's incredible. It's well, incredible. you know, the, th- the thing is, this time of year, you always should temper your reactions to any given team. No team is as good as you think they are when you think they're good. No team is as bad as you think they are. At least they tend to not be as good or as bad 
as they appear in these one and two game samples. We're near the bottom of the quarter, but we got to hear a little bit about a little bit about the NBA. So the Celtics in the East got themselves in a hole, but they look good in game three. They might do it yet. That's, that's going to be a great series. On the other side, the Nuggets could have gotten it done in game two. They could have even that series, but no, the Lakers came back. So what are your thoughts on the NBA just kind of quickly before we roll into break? Well, uh, that fortunately was a 7.30 game, so I was able to watch it in its entirety last night and flip back and forth between that and the football game. Um, the thing that struck me about that game was how great LeBron James looked in the first half. And something happened in the second half of that game. I was talking to a bunch of people about it today. Um, he looked tired and worn out. Like it almost looked like at the end of the game, he didn't want the ball. He actually made three turnovers in the last minute of the game that almost cost the Lakers that game. All I can say is thank, you know, thank God they had Anthony Davis to bail them out. And it shows you why it's good to have two superstars. But LeBron looked all of 25 years old in the first half and all of 35 in the second half. And I actually looked at it. I looked at the data for all of the games that they've played so far in the bubble. And he's been measurably better in the first half of the games and then the second half of the games. Interesting. So are you buying their minus 330 right now to win the whole thing? Do you think that's... Well, they were minus 330 before the game, but no, before they won. Okay, so they should They might be even able... be higher than that yeah, now. Adi, yeah. doesn't that shock you that before game two of that series, the Lakers were only up one nothing. Mm-hmm. Heat are up 2-1. to one. The Lakers were minus 330 to win the title. It seems shocking to me. It's a huge advantage. Well, I mean, back, back in the day, like what were the kind of like, you know, let us go back a couple years ago. What was Golden? What would Golden State's odds have been at around this time? Like at the we start of we, we thought it was a walk once they got to the championship. We thought it was all about right. But we kind of still think that, right? No, I think what you're reflecting, Shane, is you know this is one of those things where you say since it's a relative system, you're saying does this think does this say we think the Lakers are one of the greatest teams of all time? No, or do we think that Denver, the Heat, and the Celtics aren't that good? That's I what think we it's think. the latter. I think compared it's the to the Lakers. Mm-hmm. Like this is, I feel like I haven't, I mean, I, I'm, I'm curious to see, this is one of these things where it feels like we haven't seen the West against the East in so long. And we, and it's, we don't really know how they're calibrated against each other. So it's going to be kind of fun to see once they finally do meet. All right, fellas, that has been the first quarter of this special edition of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball very special edition of Wharton Moneyball. Not only are we virtual, we have, after all, been virtual for the last six months. We have a live audience today. The members of Penn Athletics R. Tate McKenzie Society are with us. They are participating here on the Zoom call and have been sitting by, mostly patiently, waiting for us to get to their questions. They sent us some questions. Great list of questions. Um, so good. I think this could inspire a new way of doing the show. We have these mailbags on occasion because you guys have given us a lot to talk about. This is the second quarter. This uh, We're changing up our format a little bit this week because we've got a chance to talk to some guys about Forest Fire analytics. So we thought that would stand in for our usual coronavirus segment. So in the second half of the show, we're going to talk Forest Fire analytics. Uh, in the first half, we talked in the first quarter, we talked current events. In this quarter, Q&A from the members of the Penn Athletics R. Tate McKenzie Society. Guys, let's just dish these around a little bit. Um, anybody want to jump on this first one? We've seen analytics-minded executives struggle trying to go from one sport to another. Paul D. Podesta, for one. Can the Moneyball approach be easily implemented across sports and or 
are there some sports that are easier to apply its principles to get more consistent and positive results? And in the classic analytics versus eye test debate, at what point does actually having an expertise in the sport you're evaluating outweigh the analytics? Who wants to jump in on that? Adi. I'll jump in with a quick answer. Um, I would say no. Um, context is huge. And I, I tell this to my students who are studying statistics that the first thing one has to do is immerse with themselves in the context. The, the, the statistics will then follow. So sure, of course, analytical principles can, can adapt, but you must master the sport. Um, you don't have to play it. You don't have to have even coached it, but you do have to be deeply immersed in it. I mean, I'll just add in that I think, you know, I mean, probably success as kind of an analyst or as a contributor team, like probably is like a little bit twofold. I mean, there's, there's kind of having the creativity to sort of like create some kind of arbitrage or some kind of opportunity, but there's also, you have to communicate it and buy, get buy-in from the team around you. And I, I, I sort of think like, you know, I, I think the people moving from one sport to another, there's an opportunity there to kind of transfer what has been learned in a particular sport to a new sport and perhaps be kind of on the cutting edge by doing that. So that actually is a positive, but you do need that sort of subject matter expertise to actually be able to communicate it, get buy-in, have the respect of kind of the team around you, especially if you're going to try and change, you know, some way in which the team is uh, run analytically. Just to build on what Shane said, which I agree with completely. Um, if you told me your only goal was to build a highly predictive model out of sample I could start to be swayed that some sort of AI deep learning approach could very well give you a set of predictions that could be context free that you could possibly use that would get you a long way there. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to tell you what to do as a manager or as a club or provide you the ability to, con uh, to persuade people, as Shane said, but I'm starting to believe that an automated AI driven model ain't going to do too bad. <laughs> All right, I got I got real quickly. I'm going to say, don't blame the Browns' performance on Deep Podesta. He's got some baggage over there. That owner has not exactly been a model of decision making. So that's my one defense of Deep Podesta. The other observation is that Billy Bean was recently announced as a part owner of a Dutch soccer team. He's been working with those guys as an advisor for a while, and now he's part owner, and they're doing pretty well in that Dutch league. So Billy Bean at least is trying is trying to show the other the other possibilities. All right, number two. Might play well. <laughs> to, to my knowledge, Moneyball approach is very focused on players. Coaches are so important to the success of teams, especially at the collegiate level. And I wonder if you have seen an approach or have created one yourself that helps evaluate the performance of coaches in some ways. More importantly, the projected future performance of coaches. Gentlemen. So we've talked about this a few times on Wharton Moneyball. Um, there's two ways we tend to think about it. One is the classic residual approach which is you build some mathematical model for expected performance. You see observed performance, observed minus expected. What does that residual possibly do to? Well, maybe it's due to the coach. And by the way, being a marketing professor, I should say this is what we do all the time. What's the brand value of a product? Well, I take all the objective features, I control for that, what's ever left over, I call that the brand value. The other way we've talked about it is just being a pure empiricist, which is to see when coaching changes happen. Unfortunately, they don't happen randomly. They don't happen frequently enough, but you could just be a brute form, form empiricist and see when those happen and try to create some measure out of that. So they, people do do that now in recruiting. We know that when a 
professional football team, for example, is looking for a new head coach, they're often looking at offensive coordinators and defensive coordinators. They will look at the track record and some teams will look at the advanced analytics of the unit that guy's been in charge of over his history as a coach. And so you're, you're kind of giving him credit or blame for his, his team's performance, but that's, that's a step in that direction. I, Eric, the thing I don't love about the residual thing is that now we're over attributing all the residual to the coach, right? So, I didn't say I like it. I just said, I, by the way, I've, I'm writing a paper right now that says this may be the dumbest possible way to measure brand value. And because I don't like this residual <laughs> approach either. I'm just right. saying it's what people do. And you're right. It's the attribution part. There could be okay. all kinds of omitted variables that lead to that attribution. That's nothing to do with the coach. Well, I'll just follow up by saying it, 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 it's hardest to do. In, it, it, sorry, it's easiest to do in baseball because the effect of the coach is, is so you can, you can really measure individual performance very accurately. It's very hard to do that in basketball and football and hockey. And even in baseball, they have yet to come up with an answer for the value of the coach. So I've been obsessed with Billy Martin for years because he seems to be able to take the twins, the tigers, the Yankees, the A's and turn them around almost a year later. How the hell does the guy do it? And yet you can't put your finger on any one, one measure, but maybe we're getting close with the, with the addition of all the tracking and the, and the data that really should be able to tell you whether players are really getting better under a new coach or system. It's certainly a terrific frontier for analytics. And it's definitely something you'll see more of in coming years. Okay. Number three for sports like baseball, utilizing shifts and basketball staggering jump in three point shots taken in the past 10 years, data analytics has fundamentally, fundamentally changed the aesthetic of these sports do you foresee leagues implementing rule changes to rein in the extremes to which these sports are being played? If so, what rules do you foresee being implemented? Do you think analytics has hurt the entertainment value of these sports because of the extremes? Gentlemen, no, our old school man, Adi. I'm going to jump in. Uh, it definitely has hurt baseball because um, there's way more home runs and far less, less base hits because of the shifts. And the players have reacted to the shifts by hitting it out of the park, which is a good reaction. And analytics have told you that's exactly what you should do. On the other hand, I don't see them changing. I see, I see the players trying to adapt more than the game itself instituting rules. I think it's highly unlikely that Major League Baseball will say, no, you have to have outfielders and you can't have more than four outfielders on each side of the, of the, of the field. I don't see that happening. Maybe in basketball, something like now, that. Now, but hold on. One of the biggest rule changes in all of sports would, is that fair to say that the changing the pitcher's mound back in the late sixties or whatever, wasn't that, that was like a response to. Yeah. The, I, 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 too much. You know, and I, 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 I wouldn't like to see this change, but I, I can't rule out that they're going to change some kind of change the, make a rule to actually kind of cut down on the amount of defensive shifting. You know, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're dramatically changing the way the playoffs work. I mean, I, I don't think, I, I kind of agree with you, Audie, that there shouldn't be necessarily, I, I don't think you, I, I think baseball will probably achieve a new equilibrium in the future through player and kind of team adjustments without the need for kind of extreme rule changes. But, you know, the question was, do I foresee rule changes? I could, I could easily foresee that. I could yeah. see the NBA. I could see the NBA with a four-point shot someday. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Wouldn't they just move the line out? Why don't they just move the line out a little bit? They, they can do done, that. They've too. done it before. That. But baseball prides itself on its continuity, and once you start changing rules, then you you have a problem. Like I would see that I could see an an automatic umpire more quickly because that doesn't advantage one side or the other. Right. By the way, just quickly, Adi, they, they were lambasting at the U.S. Open. I don't know if you saw. Only the center court erroneously in tennis erroneously used 
linesmen, the other courts were using Hawkeye and the, the system, and they were saying that was beautiful. And McEnroe was just saying, we've got all the courts, use the automatic tennis. I mean, why are we having these lines people making all these mistakes and players have to challenge it? Get the call right the first time. Uh, wouldn't it be, we, there needs to be like a Back to the Future movie where it's just Macaron in the 70s and Hawkeye. And, and, and some, <laughs> it gets to concentrate on playing only. <laughs> okay, number four. Can you talk about a player in a sport currently playing that without fervent analytical interpretation may not have been given the opportunity or would not be as effective if he did not play in today's data-driven world? Why is that the case? Well, I listed, so a, two, I listed two players, one that I love talking about, which is, you know, since I'm a big Laker fan, you know, and I've been watching Rajon Rondo, former Celtic, who led them to the title in his uh, rookie year. Of course, they always give credit to Rondo. Don't forget that they had Ray Allen, Kevin Garnett, and Paul Pierce on that team. But who, go, who looks back at that team and says Rondo was the key? No, nobody does. But I just want to comment. I see Mike shaking his head. No, not only was he not the key, Mike, but I don't know if you know, but he was the biggest negative plus minus guy in the entire NBA this season. As a matter of fact, he was the worst guy in, in partnership with LeBron James. Matter of fact, almost in the history of the NBA in the last 20 years. The second guy actually is Russell Westbrook. Mr. Triple Double himself is horrible from an analytics perspective. He can't shoot threes. He shoots 42% from the field. He, t- he takes too many shots. So those are two players in basketball right there that aren't as good as the analytics would suggest. Okay, well, I want to go the other way. I think the question asks who would be – who's playing because of analytics? And I actually have just – so, so I'll, I'll stick with baseball, what I know the best. I would argue that a huge majority of the catchers working today are there because the teams understand how valuable their catcher framing is. And, and they don't even care that they just can't hit a lick. Um, and they really can't, as a group, hit for much at all. And because of catcher framing, the second group is relief pitchers, those, that middle lanes relief. Those are the nobodies of baseball back in the day. And they are driving team success across the board. And finally, the superstar um, uh, attribution moniker to the greatest player alive to Mike Trout I think is entirely credited to analytics he doesn't lead in average he doesn't lead in RBIs he doesn't lead in home runs how is he the world's greatest player analytics I mean I'll push back on the Mike Trout thing just because I think he would be recognized as the best player in baseball anyway even even without advanced analytics I'm not uh, but but you know it's it's hard to know that hypothetical I mean when I saw this question what I kind of thought of is a you know kind of stories like Trevor Bowers where there's been pitchers that have been able to basically redesign like re-engineer their pitching or add a new pitch or kind of achieve sort of like late career success Justin Verlander's another one through the direct kind of use of analytics and so I think you know in those cases I mean obviously they they probably would have made it to the big leagues even without analytics, but the, that analytics clearly kind of contributed to their career success. Wonderful. All right. Question number five, what are the emerging areas of research and application in sports analytics? Let's do everyone do one favorite one. Cause we kind of get a front row seat through this show. We're talking sports, have been talking sports for six years. Everyone give one of your favorite emerging areas in sports analytics. Mine. It's the same in sports as it is in my home field of marketing, motion tracking in sports, GPS phone tracking in marketing. Oh, wow. Okay. Pretty good, pretty good analog there. All right. Shane? Me, uh, sports medicine and injury prevention. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The 49ers really want to talk to you, Shane. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, most of the NFL wants to talk to me right now. Well, that's a holy grail. I think that's further down. I think it's training analytics, um, in particular, 
being able to concentrate and what Chain gave an example was a, some very specific aspect of your performance, which you hone in on and you spend your time making that really precise and excellent using a feedback mechanism through electronics and computing and analytics. So I think these are three great, almost stock answers. I love them all. I think the two other questions that came up, one we've talked about, one we will talk about that I think deserves some attention for the future. That's coaching analytics and um, the intangibles because we can, we're real good about measuring the physiological stuff. And that's pretty much what y'all have just named and appropriately. So we're not so good yet about the character. Stuff. Leadership, right? Leadership, leadership. Exactly. Brent. All right. So what we're doing here, to remind everybody, we're taking questions from members of Penn Athletics, R. Tate McKenzie Society. Our live audience tonight are the R. Tate McKenzie Society folks. And they gave us some questions to kick around. So in this quarter, we kick around 10 questions from essentially their mailbag. So number six, can you share information on any modern predictive analytics used for NFL game outcomes or the presidential out election? So this is straight down the middle for us, right? So we, we really appreciate the value of predictive analytics, and that's something we have seen in the field. I think the field's done a pretty good job of moving on this in the last five or six years, moving beyond mere descriptive in-sample work to predictive out-of-sample work. And of course, I mean, we talk about ESPN's FPI as a predictive model. The, the home model, Massey Peabody, is a predictive model. In the presidential election side, our go-to, I believe our go-to, is 538, Nate Silver's site. And unless we want to go to prediction markets where there are prediction markets who can provide some pretty good stuff as well. Eric. Yeah, so it's interesting that you mentioned that because I've spent a lot of time uh, studying and paying attention to recently the uh, presidential prediction markets and the senatorial election markets. And I actually am doing a comparison between the betting markets and the 538. So the thing I was going to use about this was just two words, which is polar model averaging. So what 538 does really well, if you actually dig just one level below, is they take a bunch of different, whether it's polls or forecasts, they average them. So model averaging is a good thing. Then the second thing that they do is they make an adjustment for then historical trends. So like, for example, candidate X may be leading Y by six points in the polls. However, given all these other variables, they do a after the fact adjustment and say, well, that's 6% is really 4.8% as it manifests itself in historical data. So I think model averaging and I'll call post-model adjustment are the two things that I like that typifies 538. I just want to underscore the model averaging idea because it's something that is, you know, run of the mill now in statistics. And I think many people outside of the field would consider it surprising and maybe even blasphemous that you just average a bunch of models together. If you like your model, you spend all the time on your model. Why would you just blend it with somebody else? It's like, well, turns out you can do better that way often. And the world is catching up on that. All right. Number seven, how do you account for the qualitative nature of sport and the intangibles that are present in so many great athletes and teams? What about this one? Who's got this one? So the silence there reflects how difficult this is. I I mean, I I think you don't. (laughs) Yeah, you don't. We don't account for it because typically I think intangibles is kind of like you've got the SWAT that you can predict. Mm -hmm. And then you've got law, just kind of like what you kind of understand is random luck. And then the, the part in between is the intangibles, right? I'll just analogize it with one of my favorite topics, which is uh, hotness in sports, uh, clutch. You know, that's one of those intangible things. We can't, we, you can technically should be able to measure um, clutchiness or hotness in sports. And, and we all know it exists, yet we can't measure it in any way. Um, and we can't pin it down because 
it's uh, so hard to disentangle it from the effects of just chance variation. And that's the same problem with the intangibles too. We all know it exists. We know there are, there are players that have them, but we can't disentangle its effect versus all those other random fluctuations, which really have no cause. That's why we call, call them random. Well, I've always appreciated that about what you say, Adi. You're, you're a hardcore statistician, but you're not saying this stuff doesn't exist. It's just that we have a, a real hard time measuring it. Let me ask one other related issue. Second order interactions, third order interactions, like two-way interactions, three, three-way interactions, I would put them in the same bucket as momentum and intangibles. Mostly models don't worry about them and, they do, and we don't do a great job capturing them. By definition, they're less important, but that's not to say they don't exist. And in fact, I, 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 my, my working hypothesis would be that among the best teams in the world, sometimes those second, those two-way interactions, three-way interactions are what separate you. If you're all equally skilled and you're at that, at the, kind of at the frontier of ability, teams that actually work well together versus teams that are more independently working, uh, you know, then they're going to have an advantage. Okay, I got so I got to rise out of everybody. Let's go with Shane first. Well, I'll, I'll just sort of say, like, kind of following up on kind of Audie's framing of it is, is that I think, I think that's right. I mean, I think that, that there are these kind of interactions uh, that happen. It's just that the ones that, you know, are kind of, kind of obviously sort of discernible, that are, are, are measurable, are rare enough that, you know, they're kind of almost idiosyncratic, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you'd like, we can all look back and say, yeah, that, that Belichick-Brady pairing, there was something to that, that, you know, that probably, you know, won't be replicated with either one separately. But does, is that at all prognostic to the next kind right. of version of that down the line? Let, let me put a probabilistic sort of gloss on that. If you ask yourself, which is harder to find, a super rare but large effect, like the Belichick-Brady combination, or the very common small effect, they're equally difficult. Yeah, very yeah. hard to tease out a very common rare effect as it is a super rare but large effect. Yeah, I was just going to reflect back on, I remember one of my uh, funniest moments was, again, when I was doing some work for the Eagles and they asked me, build a player evaluation model. And I said, oh, okay, I'll do my best, whatever. And then, then they said, um, build us a model for the optimal team and the interactions between players. And I said, oh, uh, you and everybody else, that'd be great. I'll just go do that now. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a 22 players on the field at a sport which is really exactly. some time before we have optimality on that one all right guys down to three questions let's see if we can catch these before the end of the quarter number eight what human capital hardware and software does a college program like Penn need to make full use of sports analytics in recruiting player development and game preparation that's a very relevant question I'm curious what these guys are going to say I'm going to sort of jump in, if you don't mind, uh, Cade. Um, we're, I'm running right now the Wharton uh, Sports B uh, Analytics and Business Initiative, and one of our groups is um, really trying to deal with Penn Athletics. And we've been talking to some of the teams, and we have bodies of students, and we're interested in uh, getting some of the coaches to really buy in. And I think that's one of the areas we really like to, uh, to get some development. They kind of all kind of know what they want to do, but they haven't quite gotten there to that point of saying, we want to use this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just going to comment that um, I agree with you, Adi. I think uh, WASABI, which is the acronym for the Wharton Sports Analytics Business Initiative, I think um, is the right thing because we have undergraduate students mainly that have data science skills. They have 
data collection skills. Um, they, they learn how to build predictive models and they just love applying it to sports. And so um, I'm, I'm like you, I'm hoping that it's not only a big attraction for Penn, but it's the perfect training ground for students that not only want to help Penn, but also work in these industries going forward. I think it's you, what you're doing with undergraduates, my son being one of them, yeah. is extraordinarily unique. Well, I, I will say that my, that's my answer across universities, not just at Penn. The answer is take advantage of the human capital that's on campus and already fired up about sports. And we've seen little pockets of this happen at a number of universities. The, the guys uh, who created Huddle, this is one of the great sports analytics companies out there. Those started out as just guys at the University of Nebraska helping the football team. Um, I know the guys, you know, the, the, to the extent that, that University of Texas has an analytics department for their baseball program, it started out as a student, and now you know probably two thirds of that group is students, and so they're ready to go. Technology is so cheap and easy these days, and you've got vendors who want to sell into programs like most universities have. The, the key is the manpower, and it's laying it's all over the campus. Programs need to take advantage of having that manpower around them. All right, number nine, outside of the book Moneyball, can you provide literature and research articles that would be helpful in developing a deeper understanding on analytics in sports? This is another one of these where we could probably all just pick a favorite. What recommendation would you make to this crowd, but also to listeners in general on good sports analytics introductions or, or to get deeper? So I'll actually recommend the sequel to Moneyball, which is called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. And it, it's about a bunch of analysts from uh, baseball prospectus. I forget it with Ben Lindbergh and, um, and they went and bought essentially where they didn't buy it, but they, they were handed a minor league team to kind of control. And they learned that, that sports analytics is much, as much about management as it is about statistics. It's a great fun, good fun story and, and a humbling one for it's, which is also helpful. Shane? I'll, I'll just sort of point out, I mean, I, I, what I thought of was less like a kind of a book reference, but I think, you know, people should be aware of just amount, the amount of kind of like, like sort of like on the blogosphere, the amount of kind of cool research that's going on at like pro football focus or fan graphs or any of these other like baseball prospectus, which Audie mentioned. I mean, you don't have to necessarily wait for it to get distilled down into a book. There's a lot of stuff kind of out there on a daily basis. Yeah, and the only thing I would add to that is the one word I haven't heard us mention yet in the entire show is experiments. And so to me, I think if people want to learn something about how to do analytics that's practical, that doesn't require advanced degrees in math or programming, learn how to run a well-designed experiment. And any book that tells you how to run proper field experiments, I think would be a great way for you to bring analytics to your company. I would, I would pimp, it's a great, great idea. I endorse all those ideas. I think they're, they're, they're fantastic. Two standbys that I would go with is scorecasting, which probably goes back almost 10 years now. Toby Moskowitz, the University of Chicago at the time, finance professor, and John Wertheim, a number two at Sports Illustrated and a great sports writer. Wertheim and Moskowitz wrote a great book on analytics across a number of sports. And then more recently, Ben Ryder wrote a book on the Houston Astros before they were caught cheating. And so unfortunately for Ben, this book, might get caught up in the wake of that. But if you want to know what's going on at the real cutting edge of developing, Shane mentioned this before, pitchers who change their games because of analytics. It's that baseball has jumped back in the front of sports analytics because they're using it for development. And the Astro Ball captures that really well. All right, going into the last question here. So the last of the 10 questions, uh, what does the future of sports analytics look like? We've only got a couple of minutes. You got to be pithy, fellas. Got to be pithy. What's the future of sports analytics? What do you got? I could be one sentence pithy. Um, 
tell me what the data is going to look like in the future. And I'll tell you what the future of sports analytics is going to look like. I'm a data guy. I follow the interesting data. I think one thing that we haven't discussed already in terms of kind of like directions for analytics to contribute on is just the watch the, the viewer experience. So 10 years from now, we are going to have some amazing augmented reality kind of viewing experiences for all our sports where the amount of kind of quantitative uh, stuff that you're going to be able to kind of watch as a game happens is going to be really pretty fun. I'm going to be less, a little less sanguine. One of the things that uh, I'm predicting in the future is much more private um, so much of the great sports analytics has been done within public data. I think the next generation is private proprietary. The golfers hire their experts. Everyone has their own. The teams go in-house with this high-end data and that we end up standing on the back edges and having less interesting stuff to contribute because we don't have that frontline data. It's an unfortunate uh, future. We'd have to actually have to buy it. And if we, we'll have to figure that out. So I'm going to go with uh, these intangibles, two-way, three-way interactions, it's specifically because of motion tracking. We know so much more about what players' movement is and what impact that has on defenders and other players that we're going to be able to finally understand the impact of some players who are kind of undersung right now because it's, it's the two-way two -way interactions that they're cre creating. And it allows us to do expected performance a lot better either. What should have happened given the motion, how open the receiver was, the basketball player was, et cetera. That's right. All right. All right, guys. That has been the second quarter. That set of questions, courtesy of members of Penn Athletics, R. Tate McKenzie Society. It's been great fun to have you guys along for this ride in this very special first hour of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter of a very special show. We are virtual as we have been since March. We just had an hour live session with a very special University of Pennsylvania group. And in this half hour, really maybe the next hour, we're going to spend some time with some guys doing analytics in a very different corner of the world, they, they work on, on fire analytics. And with all of what's going on in the American West, we thought it would be interesting to find out how analytics are being used in these forest fire efforts. This is Cade Massey host, and I've got two of my three colleagues here with us. Eric Bradlow is here, Shane Jensen is here, and we are delighted to welcome to the show, Matt Thompson and Kit O'Connor. Good afternoon, gentlemen, how are you? Doing well. Thanks. Thanks for having us, Cade. Delighted to have you. Appreciate you taking the time. Um, it's always a little bit of a challenge when we have more than one. We're not professional interviewers, so we're not quite as slick with it as some, but we'll try to kind of point things here and there. But please feel free to jump in. Before we get going, let's find out a little bit about who you are and why it is that we grabbed you to talk about firefighting analytics. Matt, can you tell us what your position is and what your role is in the forestry service? Yeah, I am what's called the research forester, and I work in the human dimensions program at the Rocky Mountain Research Station, which is one of multiple research stations that is employed by the USDA Forest Service. Our group uh, within the human dimensions program, we call ourselves the wildfire risk management science team, and it really brings together an interdisciplinary group of engineers, economists, ecologists, other backgrounds, and collectively we try and address a lot of questions that are really at the intersection of the, the challenges that are facing not only the agency, but society today around the, the growing complexities of wildfire 
transitioning from what we used to call fire seasons into the fire years. And our acute focus is really how we can support safer and more effective uh, response to wildfire incidents. Okay, great. That's Matt Thompson coming to us from Fort Collins, Colorado. And then Kit O'Connor, can you tell us a little bit about where you are and what you do there? Yeah, uh, my name is Kit O'Connor. I'm a research ecologist uh, out here in Missoula. I'm with the same group that Matt talked about. So I'm with Rocky Mountain Research Station Human Dimensions Program. Um, and uh, I'm actually nestled here in Missoula next to the Fire Lab, which is one of the more famous locations where a lot of the fire research comes out of. And as, met, as Matt kind of mentioned, what our real push is to take a lot of that science that can come out of a place like the Fire Lab and then apply it directly for managers to use. So we're kind of more where the rubber hits the road in terms of okay. taking that science and translating it into something that can actually be used on a fire during an incident or during that pre-season planning time period. Got it. Well, you guys have probably had your hands full over the last few weeks and months. Can you give us any sense of how your information, your science, the, the work that's coming out of your labs is being translated right now? How, how is analytics being used right now in the forest fire, in the forest fires we're hearing so much about? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because this year is going to be kind of one of our, our highlight years. If you have heard about a fire in the news this year, chances are uh, someone from our team provided the analytics to help look at uh, where control opportunities were and what the fire safety environment was for those fire responders. Uh, so far in 2020, we've supplied analytics to 57 large wildfires throughout the Western United States. Um, our goal uh, moving forward is going to be able to expand our analytical base out to serve the southeast as well, and eventually even the northeast. Uh, but we are really working uh, west-wide at the moment. So let me ask you guys, how do you measure, like, you know, in marketing or in business, we might call it the counterfactual, you might call it the ROI. Like, how do you measure, like, had we not done analytics for fire, this is what would have happened instead of what happened. And therefore everyone says, oh, thank you, Matt and Kit, for all the work you're doing because you've saved this many lives, this many hours, this many acres or something. How do you think about that? Well, you know, I'll, I'll let Kit answer specific to the, the analytics. I would say that uh, writ large, the counterfactual problem is endemic in fire. There are so many interventions that we put in place. And then the question is, what would have happened, for example, had we not gone and implemented mechanical treatment or prescribed fire? Uh, in a lot of cases, people use simulation modeling to get at the counterfactual, which of course carries some uncertainties. Here, what we're actually looking at is the counterfactual of the decision, if you will, which is to say, how might their strategies and tactics have differed if they did not have this menu of available analytics at their disposal, which like Kit said, get at things like where can you be more effective and where can you be safer? And you know, as a partial answer to that question, we have invested in a third party review where we're interviewing the consumers and end users of these analytics to at least begin to understand how it informed their decision making. What, what are the analytics at all? It's fascinating for us to hear, we've provided the analytics on 57 large fires this year. What, what are you even talking about? Yeah, that's a great, I, I, sorry, to, I, I, just to follow up kind of, yeah, I, I guess because you could talk about sort of like, is mostly it about occurrence or size of fires? Like do when, when you say, for example, something like, oh, this is a bad fire, a year for fires, like what, what kind of, I guess, outcomes are you in particular looking at? 
or maybe just to translate into sports since we're a sports show. Um, you know, when you're a baseball fan, you look at the back uh, or see a game, you see the box score. What are the metrics? What does the box score look like for fires? There's a lot. I want to roll it back real There's quickly. There's a lot to, to unpack there. Yes. <laughs> I want to roll it back originally to, to Eric's first question of, of kind of the metrics of how do we know that what we're doing actually matters. And I actually do want to bring in a sports analogy in that, you know, 120 years of recorded sports or professional sports globally uh, didn't necessarily rely on sports statistics for people to win and lose games, right? And that absolutely applies to fire. Firefighting professionals are going to do their jobs to the best of their ability at all times. That's what they do, the professional fire responders. Uh, what our analytics do is hopefully provide better information. And I guess the best metric we have for whether this makes a difference or not is the demand for the metrics. Uh, and over the last three years, we have seen uh, probably a thousand percent increase in demand for these tools. Uh, once people start to see them and get familiar with them, they want to, to have them at their fingertips and they can use them for communication. They can use them for aligning strategies. They can use them for a lot of different things. Uh, but we can't directly measure what the outcomes of, of that additional information are. Let's just leave it at that. Super interesting and a, and, and a reasonable metric, though I have to say by that metric, football analytics suck right now because nobody's <laughs> using them. The coaches just won't take them up. So there is a, I mean, you guys have fought this culture some, and it's, we're, we want to eventually get to that, but it sounds like you've had good progress. Um, but, but can we understand what the analytics are? Like when you say we've provided analytics to 57 fires, what is that? So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll speak to that in a couple of different ways. Uh, first of all, there is a group that helps facilitate getting uh, these analytical tools into the hands of teams uh, and decision makers, and it's, it's the risk management assistance group out of the Washington office. So there's this coordinated effort across federal ownerships uh, and even coordinating directly with states uh, and, and down to municipalities um, to make a menu of analytics available uh, during um, fire management operations and specifically for the most expensive, most hazardous fires that are out there. And then what, do, what is it that we offer on our smorgasbord of options? Uh, there's actually a, a packet of information that risk management assistants will supply and say, this is the menu of what we have to offer. And we can usually turn it around in two or three days. What do you want? Um, some of the tools that our group supplies specifically are something called the suppression difficulty index and or SDI for short, and everyone hates acronyms, so uh, but we'll keep it as just SDI. Expression uh, difficulty is basically that a metric of uh, fire responder effort necessary to do something about a fire, so uh, or necessary to contain a fire. And one of the, the main things that we that it tries to address is fire responder safety. Um, the point of it is to map out in advance what are the watchout situations that fire responders need to be aware of and be concerned about to avoid things like a burnover um, or to avoid entrapment, uh, making sure they know where the places are on the landscape where they can most effectively use their resources and where they can. Now, one of the challenges with SDI is it does not get a probability of success. It doesn't give any kind of a likelihood of whether you should or shouldn't use a certain location. It's just a really nice statistical analysis of the landscape in terms of access, potential fire behavior, some other things along those lines. Yeah, let, me, let me ask a couple of clarifying questions. Um, so one, most of us aren't familiar with the exercise. So there, the literature seems to be very interested in fire control. So can you maybe tell us a little bit about the decisions that these guys are making? It sounds like they're having to choose where to take their stands. 
to exactly. the outside of that's the way it feels. And so, okay, so that's that's one of the that's one of the key decisions. And then the other thing that's 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 raised by the way you've talked about this is, my lord, what data are these analytics based on? And 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 it sounds like they're not continuously available, but they are like on demand available. So you've got some data source and some models that you can that you can marry to produce these answers. But what are those? How do you have data on what on on which fire control locations are more likely to be successful than others? Well, what kind of resolution so, is this at? Like, you know, yeah. are we talking like at feet, feet level, square miles, et cetera? Yeah, so uh, th- this was a good segue into the, the more machine learning-based statistical model that, that Kit has built. And so I'll, I'll let him describe that. But just to answer one of the questions is a key decision is kind of identifying that window of both space and time where you're likely to have success. And so that's a factor of things like the landscape itself, the continuity of fuels, the presence of natural or built features that might uh, facilitate support, whether that's a ridge top, a water body road, um, as well as the conditions that are driving the fire behavior. So you're looking at wind, at fuel moisture. So again, it's, it's that spatial and temporal box or window within, within which you can safely and effectively respond. And so that's one of the key gaps that we identified, it was largely driven by expert judgment and intuition uh, until Kit built the model that he can now describe. Yeah, and to to kind of put it into a sports analogy, uh, we're going to talk about the next tool, which actually is this probabilistic tool. It's a probability surface of of kind of highest likelihood of success for containing a fire. Uh, And it's called the Potential Control Locations Atlas. Uh, it's a wall-to-wall continuous surface you can spread out over a landscape. And one way to think about it is if you get into kind of the sports analogy, imagine you've got your court, you've got your heat map of where you should and shouldn't be shooting from because you have a certain probability of success from certain locations, right? Uh, that three-point line actually looks really good now that we've done the analytics on it. Or if you're right in front of the basket, again, you have very high probability of success. But if you're between those two locations, your probability starts to drop. So imagine that you can now look at, an, at a landscape and fire is the game that you're, you're working with here, but every single court that you're managing is different. And so what you're looking for is commonalities of where are those three-point locations and where are those close-up locations, and then everything in between is low probability of success. So Rook, Rook, just, to, just to make sure, to get one level deeper to make sure we understand what you're looking for. In general, how would you describe what makes a good fire control location? Generally looking for a place that has uh, high accessibility, uh, low fire behavior potential, so uh, relatively uh, not, not terribly hot when it burns or not burnable at all, if possible. Uh, easy to get people or equipment there. Um, typically, it's uh, a location uh, that is already existing on the landscape, something you don't have to build. So you can leverage some natural feature of that landscape. Um, and it holds under a range of variable conditions. So, so I don't know what Shane, Shane might ask a technical question. We all have a question, but Shane, why don't you jump in here? Well, I mean, I, the, the, your, your last kind of comment is, is in line with what I was going to ask because, you know, of course, and I talked also about the, the kind of temporal component of this. You're not just looking for sort of, I guess, a space, like a spatial location. You're also looking for a, some kind of time window when you think things are going to be kind of most effective, I would guess, which obviously I, I would assume that brings in like kind of like the very local weather conditions and all this other stuff. So I guess, I guess it's sort of like, you know, again, with the sports analogy, the basketball court is actually changing over time, at least in terms of wow. the climatic conditions. And so how much of that is kind of factored in? Like, are there certain locations you're going to kind of 
that, that you tend to use regardless of, of, of kind of the weather conditions or does like, you know, prevailing winds and all that kind of really often change your, that, that map around substantially? So that's a really, really good point with these analytics. Um, and something like the, the analytic I, I mentioned previously, suppression difficulty index, uh, is really driven by potential fire behavior. And fire behavior is strongly influenced by wind speed, wind direction, and uh, the relative dryness of the fuels. And so as those things change, and it can be hour to hour, then your suppression difficulty index is likely to change too. Um, now, the, the difference with that other tool I'm talking about, this, this atlas of potential control locations, the best locations on the landscape are going to be the best locations under whatever conditions there are. They might not be useful under certain conditions, but they're not going to, uh, there's not new opportunities that are gonna emerge um, under more extreme conditions, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that is actually one of the things we're, we're looking at kind of as the next step. Uh, right now we're kind of holding uh, the, the climate envelope uh, constant, basically saying we're, we're planning for a specific fire weather, wind uh, condition. Uh, and basically saying this is your best best shot under these conditions. If you're outside of these conditions, use your expert judgment to adjust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and just to back up real quick, just to provide some of that that kind of data background, the the nuts and bolts of the model it's actually trained on historical perimeters. So yeah. these are spatial polygons, and Kit analyzes thousands of perimeter features, and on the basis of their relation to things like fuel topography, distance to road, distance to valley bottom, suppression difficulty index, even it's able to train itself onto what that probability surface looks like. So, so it is very data driven. How have you, how do you have data on thousands of past fires? I mean, how, how do you know what a perimeter is doing? Are you guys just able to map and follow the, the evolution of a fire perimeter continuously? Is that, is that the data that you're working with? Historical fires that have been mapped? So we're using kind of space and time substitution methods. Uh, we have, in the United States, we're really fortunate to have surprisingly good data on fire perimeters, where fire burned to and then stopped basically. And we've got about 20 to 25 years of high resolution. When I say high resolution, I'm talking about 30 meter pixel size. Um, So about 90 feet by 90 feet um, is the the smallest spatial unit that you can look at. Um, And we use satellites for that information. We also use infrared imagery. Uh, And then basically every fire that's burned in North America uh, over the last 20 to 25 years, we have that, that level of resolution of information. Got it. That, those are that's some good data. I mean, we, we, we don't often have that much archival data to work with, to kind of get started with. Often we have the problem of we want to do analytics, but we have to first collect the data. You, you're sitting on top of some great data. I'm sure there's others you need, other data you need, but that's a good starting place. We are talking to Matt Thompson, research forester, and Kit O'Connor, fire ecologist, both active in firefighting in general, but especially in the in the American West, we've had so much trouble this year. They're telling us a little bit about analytics, the analytics of, of firefighting. Eric wants to jump in here. With yeah, so Matt, can I have more of a philosophical question, but it builds on Kit's question of three is greater than two. Like in basketball, I know why a three is better than two because I can compute the effective scoring rate of a three versus a two. You guys have a, such a multidimensional outcome. Like, let me just name a few, and I apologize if I miss any saving firefighters' lives, saving other human lives, saving the forest, saving homes. You know, I could name a 10-dimensional, 50-dimensional vector of things. 
How do you give a decision support tool when a lot of these times these dimensions may be at odds with each other? How do you think about that? Well, that's a really good question. And it, it kind of dovetails into the third uh, analytic, if you will, that, that I think Kit was building towards. Right, so we typically view these as a package of three. So again, there's the suppression difficulty getting at firefighter safety. There's the potential control atlas, which is built from machine learning and that gets at potential control opportunities. And the third is a quantitative risk assessment. So those are things that typically uh, operate uh, through kind of a combination of Monte Carlo style simulation, geospatial mapping and workshops that identify stakeholders and local managers values at risk. So typically in these risk assessments, we're trying to compare these apples and oranges, things like human communities, critical infrastructure, wildlife habitat, timber resources, recreation resources, it kind of runs the gamut. But insofar as you can have these risk assessments done in advance that quantify things in what we call expected net value change or conditional net value change, it kind of uses some, some kind of multi-attribute utility theory aspects to lump that all into a singular sum. It could be monetized, we haven't taken that step. But what you're able to then do is in pre-season planning, identify where on the landscape you're most concerned about fire damages, where you may actually see some ecological benefit from fire by having that surface in addition to where can we and can't we have uh, likely control, where can we or shouldn't we be sending firefighters to engage the fire, you can kind of have a more robust picture because really, these are all, as you say, they're multidimensional, but they're really complex risk-risk trade-offs. And so we're trying to balance that risk to the landscape and the community with the risk that we're willing to accept in terms of where do we send firefighters and for what reason. And that latter question, um, where do we send fire responders and for what reason to do what is really the kind of, I, we think is the next step in fire analytics. It's, yeah, we can show, um, you know, the shot percentages just in terms of, uh, you know, how, how how large fires are likely to be or how many of them we can contain. But we'd, we're not yet to the point of knowing that Steve Nash shoots 60% from this location on the floor, but that drops to 55% when there's a defender over six foot guarding him, right? We're trying to get to that level of detail. It, it sounds like that might, it feels like that would, that would uh, be a higher bar to, to hit because it, it takes some of the decision control away from the guys in the field. It's one thing to give them tools to say, this is better information on what you're Notice doing. Notice I said decision support tool, Cade. Yeah, it, well, exactly. So, I mean, look, all of this stuff is rife with politics and cultural change, but um, it, it, we, we want to hear a little bit more about how the tools have been received and how you've navigated that. And, and, and um, you know, any tips you've picked up along the way, because this is a battle that we fight on a lot of different fronts. Yeah, so, I'll, I'll start and then I'll let Kit kind of chime in because he's much closer to the kind of delivery for this fire season. Um, you know, one thing is we are not purporting to be delivering uh, prescriptive analytics in, in any near term. We're really focused on predictive to identify where might your opportunities be. And then what we're really trying to do a better job of is descriptive analytics, not in terms of describing the phenomenon of fire itself, but describing the phenomenon of our response to fire itself. What type of resources are we using, where, when, and why? And that's been one of the big data gaps. Um, but in terms of how we've been socializing this, you know, it really, it was the Moneyball analogy itself that was kind of uh, uh, helped us move forward by leaps and bounds. I had been using the phrase evidence-based management. I had been using the phrase data-driven decision-making with operational folks. And you could just kind of, you know, see the eyes glaze over. Um, <laughs> and then we started using the phrase Moneyball for fire and people, 
people got it, you know. So, so one quick anecdote, if I may, um, you know, we, we have been working, you know, towards the field to get operate this in the hand of operators. We've also been using this to convey upward oversight agencies of the rest, like how the agency is moving towards that data-driven approach. And I showed, you know, the heat map showing the Houston Rockets and how they kind of revolutionized, you know, the, the, the shot location and they shoot from the baseline three. Um, and then I compared that to a graph that showed the general kind of NBA season average and how basically what Houston did was removed the mid-range jumper, which was, you know, classically considered kind of an inefficient shot. And then I showed a heat map that Kit had created of the potential control location uh, surface and overlaid on top of that where air tankers had been doing retardant drops. And you could see that in some cases it was on in locations where control likelihood was very low. And there may have been any number of reasons why that was a good decision at the time, but we were just articulating this is a horizon that we can be moving towards, this coupling of where our resources uh, engaging in fire suppression activities in relation to our predictive analytics, and we can hopefully learn from that. And the guy kind of scratched his head, and then he said, so what you're telling me is that tanker drop was a mid-range jumper. And I was like, ah, we've done it. <laughs> yes. That's amazing and fantastic. Daryl Moore will be very pleased to hear that. Yep. Kit, you were going to jump in on something there. Yeah, I, I just wanted to, to kind of touch on what Matt had just mentioned about the, the quantitative risk assessment. And for that, it's really all about getting all the players uh, to do their homework before the big game. Um, so this is basically reviewing the tape. And it's bringing in uh, the actual fire managers on that piece of ground, but it's also bringing in all the folks that they're likely to be working with during an incident. Because a little different than a, than a typical game, as the stakes get down, they just keep adding new players uh, in, in fire management. And sometimes if, if that fire creeps over into a different jurisdiction, you now have two coaches running that fire in what's called the unified command. Uh, and so making sure that those two coaches are on the same page as to what their objectives are for that fire is critical. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where something like that risk assessment that actually brings in all of those moving parts of where are the values at risk, where are the people, um, what, what are the kind of the safety parameters we need to function under, and what are the general acceptable outcomes of this fire. If you can get alignment on that, and especially in the preseason, before, before the fire is actually burning on the landscape, then you can get really good close coordination um, and you can avoid a lot of hurt feelings during fire. It's fascinating yeah. to hear about this preseason. How, how, how much preparation does happen? How long does the preseason last? And how much has it changed over time? I can imagine that decades ago it was pretty laid back and now it's, it may be a little bit like a military preparation. Yeah, you know, the, the phrase we've been using, Kate, is engage the fire before it starts. Um, it, it's kind of borrowing from this risk management principle of, you know, don't wait until the smoke is in the air to have to, you know, evaluate this complex decision process. So we're trying to, you know, dampen time pressures, reduce uncertainties, expand options. And basically what we've been doing is deploying these same set of analytics that we've just been describing, quantitative risk assessment, potential control location, suppression difficulty, and workshop settings with a, a large cohort of local managers, local stakeholders, cross-jurisdictional. You know, there's a phrase that people often say, fire knows no boundaries, which is, you know, a fire is just a spatial process and it can move around the landscape independent of those rectangular features that demarcate one ownership from another. But another argument we've been making is that fire control opportunities also don't know boundaries. 
And so that as like the motivating impetus to get people at the table and engage in these conversations in advance. And what Kit has been able to do, and I'll let him speak to it, is deploy these analytics in concert with expert judgment so that people in advance of the fire season have drawn on the map not only where their control locations are, but they've stratified their landscape on the basis of risk and strategic response and where they really can afford fire and where they really need to take certain aggressive strategic approaches and where they maybe want to manage fire. So Kit, maybe you want to dive into some of those workshops? Yeah, I think real quickly, just uh, one of the questions I think that Cade asked was about adoption of some of these tools and how is it that we've actually seen people starting to want to, to leverage some of these products. And a huge part of that is, is really twofold. First of all, it's been this preseason work where we kind of meekly walked out into the fire management community and said, hey, we're scientists, we can throw around cool numbers and I can make pretty maps. But I don't know anything about what you guys actually do on the ground and I want to learn. Yep. And so we basically we walked out and started working directly with fire managers and got a sense of what their world looks like and what are the challenges they're up against. Mm -hmm. And then we did our best to put together models that try to get at some of that. Mm -hmm. um, the way they do it in firefighting is it, and much like with professional sports, it's uh, any given situation, uh, a professional firefighter or uh or a, an athlete has this kind of slide deck of how, how close does this situation resemble something I've been in before and how did I get out of it and how did I get the response I wanted? Right. Uh, and that's exactly what fire responders have been doing for a hundred years. And so typically it's the, the old dog firefighter they talk about that has the most experience that you go to first because they have the best slide deck when right. it comes to one of these tough conversations or tough right. situations. Uh, and so what we've been basically doing is trying to build a model that incorporates all of that knowledge at some level, at least assimilates as much as it possibly can so that every single fire responder on that fire has access to the old dog's knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and, it's, and it's at their fingertips. Mm -hmm. um, and so we kind of built the models that way and we made a lot of mistakes early on. Um, and I was very uh, kind of hat in hand when we made a mistake, I went back and we, we tried to figure out how to make it better. Um, and then one of the things we've been really lucky about during fire season is every time we deliver something, we ask for feedback. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the negative feedback is the most constructive for us because it tells us that we need to change something. When somebody tells us it looks good, it looks good enough, that's not helpful. But if there's something wrong with it, uh, then we, we jump back in and we try and make it better. It makes a lot of sense. And um, that hat in hand thing is something that every analyst has had an experience with. And is helpful, I think, for us to be humble. I think the more you run your models against the real world, the more humble you get about your models. And it's not just us trying to convince the real world to use them, but us learning from the real world about, about how to improve them. Guys, let's, uh, let's step away for a break. We've been talking with Matt Thompson and Kit O'Connor, both with the Forestry Service, the Human Dimensions Program about firefighting analytics. We still have one. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, a very special edition. We're virtual. This is Cade Massey hosting with my buddies and colleagues and longtime Wharton Moneyball collaborators, Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. Adi Weiner can't join us today. He'll be back, of course. We are in the middle of the last hour. We're spending this hour talking to a couple of fellows from the Forestry Service who work in fire analytics. They coined a term Moneyball for Fire. And they've been telling us a little bit about what that means and where analytics 
play out in the world of forest fires. Gentlemen, the, by, by the way, those gentlemen, Matthew Thompson, Matt Thompson, research forester out of Fort Collins, and Kit O'Connor, fire ecologist out of Missoula. Gentlemen, we came to you, we were thinking about you because of all that's going on in the American West this year. Obviously, there's a lot of debate and controversy about what's going on and why it's going on. The, even the, a layperson can't avoid seeing how much worse things seem now than they have been. And we, we don't get into politics in the show. One of the reasons we like data and science is that we can, you know, we can, go, at the, we can go at the evidence and, and skip the politics. What does the evidence tell us about why these things are worse? They seem worse these days, and they're certainly worse this year. How much of it do we think from the evidence is coming from climate change or at least weather conditions? How much of it is coming from management decisions that have been made or not made over recent decades? What, is the, what does the data tell us about these things? So, Kate, that's a really good question, and it, it's, there's no simple answer. Um, and uh, first of all, um, it, it so much depends on what system you're talking about. Uh, if we're talking about the forests of, say, the West, uh, where we've seen so much fire this year, and uh, in fact, we're, we're at like five years in a row now where we've been breaking uh, records in terms of fire size and area burned uh, at certain times. Um, and so it does come down to a legacy of lack of fire on a lot of the landscape. We were actually very good um, at putting out really small, relatively easy to jump on fires for, for 50 or 60 years, um, at least. Um, and part of that legacy of putting out all those small fires uh, under moderate conditions is that we end up uh, saving a lot of fuel for the worst possible conditions. Oh, interesting. Okay. And so that is one of the things that we've been seeing is because we now have uh, in a lot of systems, not everywhere, but in a lot of systems, um, a fuel loading that is three, four, five times higher than what you would have expected in a naturally occurring fire adapted system. Okay, hold when, on. Don't, don't go too fast, quick. Don't go too quick past that. Three, okay. four, or five times the, the amount of material that you would expect in a natural system? Those are phenomenal differences. Good Lord. Okay. Well, and that's one of the challenges. Uh, and this is one of those things that's documented through historical photography. Uh, if we look at, say, the American West uh, in the early 1900s or going back even into the, the middle of the 19th century, when it was primarily a Native American dominated landscape, they used a lot of fire, uh, but there were also a lot of naturally occurring fires and there was no forest service. There was no fire prevention mechanism out there. Uh, and actually ranchers used a lot of fire at that time. And so if you look at a lot of those systems, uh, if you look at the forested systems in places like Glacier or at Yellowstone or where, they, where people were taking these historical photographs, and then you compare that to today, those systems are completely transformed. Uh, the density of trees, the density of burnable material in those landscapes can be tenfold or more higher now uh, because of a, this legacy of, of what we call fire exclusion. Mm -hmm. And it's not purely the effectiveness of our, of our fire fighting acumen. Um, it also has to do with the legacy of things like grazing, um, other land uses that just cut, that were incompatible with fire. Mm -hmm. uh, when you remove all the grasses from a landscape, it doesn't burn easily. Uh, and so when you had lots and lots of, of, of livestock in the landscape, that got rid of fire also. Now, that wasn't sustainable because that was ero eroding soils and causing other problems. So that's part of the, the equation. But absolutely, you're also right that conditions are changing now. The, 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 the length and severity of droughts that we're seeing in the Western United States 
have not been seen since this country was settled uh, by Europeans. Uh, this is a new condition that we have, we have not been prepared to deal with in our culture. Um, and so the alignment of that kind of forest management legacy with these conditions that promote longer fire seasons, hotter and drier conditions, um, what we're basically seeing is a pressure relief valve. Okay. 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 So let me ask you, Kit, um, would, would a decision support tool like you and Matt and others are building, would it ever say then, um, we're going to let some fire burn today to save acreage tomorrow? So first of all, our decision support tools don't give answers. They give information. Um, and what they do is they allow decision makers to take that information and make an assessment off of it. And absolutely, one of those assessments could be that this is the right fire in the right place to do more good than harm. Wow. And these are the conditions that if we're going to burn this landscape, do it right now and do it right here. Wow. So that is one of the, the huge um, advances and it's something that the the national agencies here in, in the US and, and actually internationally a lot of fire managing agencies um, have been trying to identify what's the right time and the right place for that fire that's actually going to reduce future risk and it's actually going to restore that system and give us a better condition than if it hadn't burned. So you're not yeah, playing you know, just this season you're playing a multi-season game essentially you're building a mm -hmm. strategy to optimize the, the performance over many seasons. That's Absolutely. Matt, I'm sorry. Matt Thompson just interrupted you. Yeah, there's one kind of systems thinking idea that people refer to as the fire paradox, which gets at what Kit just was referring to, where the more successful we are today at fire exclusion, that leads to the accumulation of fuels such that future fires can burn more hot and intense. And kind of that has led to this kind of societal response, which is to invest more in fire exclusion. And so it's that reinforcing loop. And so that is in part creating the conditions we see today, but you put on top of that, the changes in climate leading to what we're now calling, as I said earlier, the fire year as opposed to the fire season. And it's this confluence of factors that make those decisions even more challenging. So, you know, fire management agencies now refer to the new normal, which is this climate influenced and legacy influenced, where now fires look radically different than they did even decades ago. And that creates this um, almost cognitive, cognitive dissonance, if you will, which is that, as Kit said, people still refer to their slide deck. It's experiential knowledge, and I, I rely on matching what I've seen in the past with how I'm going to move going forwards, but what happens when I don't have any slides in my slide deck that align with what I'm seeing, and that's where we think is another inroad for these analytics. Well, that's, it's interesting you say that because I was, I was thinking about the challenge that presents for analytics. The same mm -hmm. challenge exists for analytics. Modeling Extrapolation beyond the range of the data is something yeah. that we face as well as you know, kind of expert knowledge. Yeah. Super interesting. So both the expert and the modeler are trying to do this. Kit, can you tell us about what it's like to try to model when the data you have historically didn't have the fuel? You just said it's three, four, five times natural fuel, and you didn't have the dryness or the temperatures in those, in those historical data. So, yeah, so I actually wanted to, to touch on that and some of the failures that we've had with our analytics, specifically addressing that uh, no analog condition. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, thinking about uh, the way our analytics are working right now, one of the lucky things we have is that we only have 20 years of good data. So we can't go back to when conditions were dramatically different, at least in terms of fuel loading. Um, we are certainly seeing changes in fuel moistures. 
um, and the relative dryness for fires to be able to burn. And one way to accommodate that is to not look at normal fire conditions, only start making your cutoffs more extreme. Um, and so we actually use percentiles to talk about fire weather. Uh, and one of the things we look at is kind of 90th percentile fire weather conditions. That's when you would expect fires to be able to burn, uh, to fuel, for fuel to be able to carry fire, but typically it's not extreme conditions. And those are conditions where you still uh, could potentially address that fire and stop it if you had to. When you move out of that 90th percentile range, you're in 95th percentile or above, now you start to get into these more extreme conditions. And what we're seeing is the uh, frequency of those more extreme conditions happening more, more mm -hmm. frequently. Mm -hmm. uh, and so one way to get at that from a modeling perspective is to uh, basically cherry pick those bad conditions from the past and carry them forward as what we're going to be expecting in the future. And that's something that climate modelers do all the time. Um, it's something that would be something we'd, we'd like to try working on with fire management, um, but it's nascent. We, we're, we're not there yet. Okay. Maybe okay. one other question relates. Didn't Kitten say earlier that you were located physically near some fire lab? Can't you just run a bunch of stuff in the fire lab? Like we do this lab stuff all the time and then take it out in the field, learn about the model, you know. Great question. Great world. question. Can't you do that? I wish it were that simple. And they, unfortunately, so that the folks at the fire lab will be the first to tell you that in order to instrument a fire and understand the physics of that fire, they grossly oversimplify what that fire combustion action actually looks like. They have this amazing sand table that they can pump gas through and then they can instrument every type of combustion and buoyant flame theory on top of that. They cannot take that outside of the lab and have a 10 mile an hour wind coming from three different directions or bring in the slope factor that you could, that changes over as the fuel moves through three or four different types of fuel type. They can address individual components of that in every way, but they don't bring everything together that you would actually find in a landscape. Guys, quick aside, this is something that everybody sees, not everybody, many people see it sometime. You're talking about um, these bad conditions reminds me of these these burn bans we run across in various parts of the country. Are analytics informing those burn bans these days, or is just some county commissioner walking out there looking around and saying, you know, run the red flag up and let's not burn anymore? Is is as it as it made its way out to the to you know the to kind of every common country outside of forest lands because there are burn bans all over the place. Well, you know, one, one quick response to that would be the types of analytics we're talking about right now are typically for what to do after you have a fire, yes, yes, um, which yes. is a different, different set of decision makers and a different set of information. So there's, you know, in the meteorological world, there's a lot of indices that are generated and updated over time, and they're looking at what are called predictive services forecasts, and they bring in a lot of different types of information and modeling. And so certainly there are analytics that inform those decisions but it's not really something that Kit and I are, are directly involved with. Right. This is something that we discovered when we started digging into you guys. We, the, the layperson thinks about predicting fires more than managing fires. And you guys are much more about the, the, the latter there. Um, Kit, listen, we, we know that your background originally was in insect ecology. And it sounds like that has informed some of your modeling. As we do talk about these control models, what have, what have you learned about how has your insect training informed the way you're modeling fires now? Well, so it's really uh, goes back to the choice of model that you'd use to try and predict something like uh, a specific location on the landscape where all the variables really align for the outcome you're looking for. 
And I borrowed that actually from the literature and not necessarily from the insect literature, but just the kind of the rare species, the wildlife literature, trying to identify why a specific species chooses a specific location on the landscape and then modeling that at broad scales, extrapolating those conditions out to a broader landscape to limit where I need to search to find the thing I'm looking for. And using that general framework of knowledge, I started thinking about, well, what are the variables that actually control fire? Uh, what are the locations on the landscape that are associated, what are the conditions on the landscape that are associated with fire, where fires tend to stop? Yeah. Uh, whether that's because they were able to get suppression resources in front of them, um, or because it got hung up because of some natural condition that just occurs on the landscape. And that's another thing that I picked up from my fire ecology background, actually during my dissertation work, was rebuilding a deep time reconstruction of fire in a specific location. Over 400 years, you start to see patterns of fire behavior, or under a certain set of conditions, fires tend to burn a certain location or not. Um, and then once they cross a threshold, they move into kind of the next location they could burn onto. Okay. And you start to see these patterns on landscape. So one of my thoughts was, well, that's like a fire control habitat. So if we could model a fire control habitat and then identify those thresholds, ideally, where fire is likely to move past that or not, that would give us, uh, it basically mean our, our fire responders would be able to leverage the natural tendency of that landscape and not have to build those locations from scratch. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Makes a ton of sense. We're talking to Kit O'Connor and Matt Thompson. They both work for the Forestry Service. They, uh, Matt, Matt Thompson's out of Fort Collins. He's a research forester. Kit O'Connor is out of Missoula. He's a fire ecologist. I'd also be interested in hearing, you know, uh, about kind of like, I mean, you, you, you made some reference to sort of local, sort of like, like last few years being kind of record-breaking levels of fire. Um, and what do you guys kind of foresee for the future in terms, in terms of fires, because I mean, you know, I mean, certainly climate scientists are predicting what, what, you know, the, like, uh, like what temperature is going to be like in the next like 10 year window and stuff like that. So that, that would be kind of something I'd be curious in hearing about. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to try and set this up here to, to segue into Kit's response because it re relates directly to the machine learning modeling that he's doing. Um, yeah, I think absolutely the writing on the wall is that we can expect longer periods of time, which are conducive to fire growth and fire ignition. Uh, that's going to be influenced by things like drought. Um, you know, you may see changes in recreation patterns that can lead to more human-caused ignitions. That certainly was the cause of some, certainly not all of the, of the large and complex fires this year here in Colorado, certainly. Um, so, so yeah, you, you do see that, but going back to this idea of feedbacks, there's also this control where previous fires can exert a control on the growth of future fires. Um, and that's kind of inverting that reinforcing feedback I talked to. And so one of the new insights that Kit is building into his model is accounting for how long ago that landscape burned and in what type of ecosystem. And that influences whether that fire is going to have a persistent effect on controlling fire or not. Kit, do you want to speak to that? Yeah, so that's... Um... One of the other things that comes out of the, the information we have is we can kind of cross data on what type of vegetation is out there and then how recently it burned as part of that, that historical fire perimeter. And then using machine learning algorithms, we can learn whether a two-year-old chaparral system is likely to reburn again or if it actually turns into a control feature uh, because it, it doesn't have anything available to burn there anymore. Um, and what's interesting is these become localized models that can be applied to, well, this is how the, the model behaves in Southern California. It's not transferable here to the Northern Rockies, 
but we, we basically learn how these models apply to specific locations. And so we have, uh, and actually the, the longer we do this, the better the record of information we have to try and adapt to that, that kind of new learning. Right. Uh, one of the things we've seen is because we have seen so much change in fire behavior in the last five years, uh, we do have some misses with our models because there are no analog conditions where our models are trying to provide decision support in a system that has never been observed before. Uh, and so uh, we've seen, for example, in Idaho, the Pole Creek fire uh, two years back, uh, we had a fire where we had a very wet old growth forest type that everybody on that forest had never seen burn. And the model predicted based on 20 years of fire history that that was not going to burn. It was basically a, a non-burnable system. And then it went up uh, wow. two years ago. And now that, that's a new piece of information for the model to now incorporate. Wow. So in the future, it's going to be more cautionary because it's going to incorporate that information going forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kit, you talked about having these local models. To what extent do they inform each other? To what extent can you borrow strength across models? Have you got to that level? It sounds like a complicated process, but is there anything to be learned by other systems from this Idaho fire you just, you just described? Absolutely. And I think uh, a lot of it has to do with proximity and actually a lot of it has to do with uh, climatic patterns. Um, and so we look at things like prevailing winds. Uh, we look at the, the relative uh, vegetation that's there. And then we oftentimes we do have to borrow from one model and, and, and put that information into another model. And partly because over the last 20 years, we don't have records of fire in certain types of vegetation. Mm -hmm. um, certain forests don't burn very frequently, right? Sometimes they, they take 100 or 200 years to burn. And so the chances of us actually having enough sample data uh, in say the front range of Colorado or in some of these high elevation systems to be able to inform a model without overfitting it is a problem. Right. That reminds me of, uh, you know, for, uh, did, has a one seed ever lost to a 16 for a long time? It hadn't happened. Oh, and then it happened recently, right? I'm a UVA alum. <laughs> yes. Well, don't worry. You won the title the next year, Matt. Let's not feel so bad. So, uh, by the uh, way, still reigning champs. That's right. That, they, didn't, they didn't play it last, last spring, but, you know, we can still model the chance of it happening even before it happened, and that's the exercise you guys inevitably have. Look, we've only got the last couple of minutes, but we want to know what comes next for you guys. Matt, especially as you look around the field, what do you think the most promising margins are for you to be pushing with the forest fire analytics? Uh, two quick things come to mind. Number one, and this was a, a point we tried to emphasize in our paper, we really need more descriptive analytics on just the management response component itself. There's a lot out there on the meteorology, on the fire behavior, and we're trying to really track where are people moving, why, for what reason, and with what degree of effectiveness. We've made, we've made strides, but there's a lot more that could be done there. Um, number two, and this goes back to the decision support aspect of it, you know, what KIT has been able to build are actually fairly sophisticated and complex models, but they need to be translated into something simple that can be used on the ground. So one idea we're, we're pursuing now is kind of what we're calling an, an atlas that will, for all of those areas on your landscape where you've pre-identified the potential control locations, done the risk assessment that says what are the potential consequences of fire, we're putting those basically in PDF booklets that can be stored on a mobile device that can be printed out. So it's in the hands of the person who is responding to the fire in real time. So, you know, some of the deliverables that kit are going to the incident management team at that high strategic level. We also want that same information to go all up and down the chain of command. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Kit, any last words from you um, on as you look forward where you, where you want, what, what margin you want to push on that you think would be most productive for analytics and forest fires? So I think the biggest thing that we're still missing is some of that dynamic uh, condition that happens on a fire. When conditions change dramatically in a period of hours or uh, a day or two, uh, we're not capturing that well. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a whole frontier of, of information that we could be capturing from streams of hourly weather data, um, actually tracking that fire progression through time. So if we have an individual incident and we pick up those fire perimeters every six hours, we get an update on, on where that fire is now and what mm-hmm. are the conditions associated with that burning front. Uh, if we could start to take those streams of data, um, that could potentially dramatically improve our ability to predict uh, what's likely to hold and what's not, and to develop those thresholds of when it's time to stand back and get out of the way of this fire uh, versus where you really have an opportunity to rush in and catch it where you need to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that gives us one last analog to the sports world. It sounds a little bit like you're looking for motion tracking where you can get much more continuous information on what's going on out there and then eventually be able to inter- intercede and, um, and, and make decisions based on it. Gentlemen, can't thank you enough for spending time with us. Appreciate your, your, the powers that be giving you permission to do so. Um, really wish you the work, best with the work that you're doing. And um, I hope we can stay in touch with it. We, it's, it's, it's great to see your, um, the progress you're making and the learnings that you're getting. And there are so many analogs. Um, but uh, thanks again for the time. Kit O'Connor, Matt Thompson, appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. We really appreciate the time. Absolutely. And that has been another episode of Wharton Moneyball. We're back to our full strength, two-hour version. Appreciate your being here with us. Enjoyed the time with the, uh, the, the society there at the University of Pennsylvania in the first hour, our athletic donors there at school. For Eric Bradlow, for Audie Weiner, for Shane Jensen, for Maddie D, the boss man, and Dion Simpkins, associate producer, this has been Cade Massey. Very much appreciate your listening. We will be back next week between now and then. Enjoy your sports.